Hello and welcome to Social Justice Matters, a podcast from Social Justice Ireland. I'm Colette Bennett, Economic and Social Analyst with Social Justice Ireland. As regular listeners will know by now, we have three different types of podcast. Our seminar series is a look back at some of our conferences and seminar presentations, where you can hear from people like Anne Pettifor, Joe Larragui and Tony Fahey. Our 10 minute lesson series is where we give a brief overview of a policy topic. And this is meant to be a useful introduction to an area that we hope our listeners will find useful. And then our interview series, where we have a chat with experts on a whole range of policy areas. So today's episode is one of those. I'm joined today by Dr. Joe Whelan of UCC. Joe has been on the podcast before talking about welfare conditionality, and he's always a pleasure to chat to, and it's a real, real pleasure to have him back again. Good morning, Joe, and thank you very much for joining me today. Thanks, Colette. Happy to be here. Pleasure to have you back. Yeah, I'll have to get a regular feature slot, I think, uh, in time to come. Can you cook? That might be our new thing. Yeah, I can. I can cook. Yeah, um, I've got maybe twenty staple, twenty to twenty-five staples that I can cook well. And, Should uh, that get us I, through the year anyway? Then. Yeah, yeah. There you go. I don't stray too far outside of that. <laughs> um, so, just I, I was reading your most recent article, and it's again, you know, the, the the term. I'm a big fan of your work, and it can get overused, but genuinely, I love your work. Um, I love how academic your own writing is and how it can bring very, very real situations into perspective. Um, so the, the latest piece is around, you know, it, it delves deeper into this idea of stigma and stigmatization and this notion of impression management. Um, can you speak a bit more about that and just, you know, particularly in the concept, context of those three concepts that you've used to frame it, um, but also just more generally in terms of the things that have come out of it. Like I loved some of the quotes in it. Um, there's, a, there's a guy, Martin, and he, he talks about himself as just saying that he's an engineer from a, for a particular area, you know, and it's, it's about self-preservation almost. Yeah. Well, well, thanks uh, for, for your kind words about the work. Uh, you know, I appreciate it. Um, so I suppose impression management, it's a strange thing, really, because like when I when I conducted the study, I didn't kind of go looking for for impression management, but it just emerged. Well, emerge is the wrong word, but I found it very strongly in the experiences of the people I spoke to. Um, and of course, impression management as a concept is very much associated with um, Irvin Goffman, um, an American sociologist who developed um, a theory of impression management in the context of stigma. Um, so he also he also did you know broader work on the presentation of the self in everyday life, and he talked about kind of the idea of life being a stage, and we're kind of actors on the stage, and depending on the context or situation we're in we act a different way or we wear a different mask. Um, and then when he, he went on to write Stigma, he took that notion up again and he talked about how people can take steps to prevent the stigma becoming known about or in instances where a stigma might already be known about, um, you know, manage that, that aspect of their identity that they feel might be problematic in a social situation or in a social context. Um, and like that can go across a whole range of, of areas and, and, and Goffman explores the different types of stigma. So he talks about kind of tribal stigmas or kind of physical stigmas and so on. 
Um, but it's kind of, it's well known. Anyone that's, you know, read or spoken about or thought about welfare will know that stigma is something that comes up quite strongly. Um, and the idea of, you know, being stigmatized for receiving welfare, uh, for being a welfare recipient, for having to rely on state assistance as opposed to being in work um, and how that, that can be a stigmatizing part of someone's identity. Um, and so when I spoke to people, that did emerge very strongly. And you'll have seen from, from the, um, the paper that you were referring to that people go to great lengths to distance themselves from that identity, that part of their identity, that the fact that they're receiving welfare, um, they'll skirt around it if they can. They, they won't engage directly in, com- in a conversation about it if they can avoid doing so. Um, and when they do have to, to, you know, maybe speak about the fact that they're receiving welfare, usually they'll take steps to kind of justify it or distance themselves from more common sense narratives. Um, so it's a very kind of complex social phenomenon that people find themselves engaged in. And it can it, it emerge very strongly within the, uh, the experiences of the people I spoke to. Um, and as I say, it can be tied to classical conceptions of impression management from sociologists such as Irvin Goffman and others then that have also taken up his work. Um, And do you find, or, you know, this may not have come out through your own work, but just, like, where is it coming from? Does it come from the fact that when we talked the last time, we were talking about, you know, welfare conditionality and and the fact that there's a lot of hoops to jump through to even get your benefit and then to retain that benefit. Um, Is it, does it come from that? Is it more sociological, you know, because it is something that is is almost universal. Like in, in all of the, the data and all of the, the work that I would have read, your own included, there is that feeling from welfare recipients that that they're less than, that this is something that should be shameful, that this that they should hide from. Um but yet I would find it hard to point the finger and say, well, it's coming from there, or it's you know, that person said that to you, is that why, you know, is there a, a universal thing or is it just more kind of nuanced than that? I think you see it's, um, it is a universal thing, particularly in liberal welfare states, less universal welfare states, um, where there's an emphasis on means testing, but there, but it goes across a whole kind of range of areas. So, I mean, you spoke there about the idea of being less than, and I think when somebody engages in um, making a claim for welfare, there's a degree of social demotion involved. So it's almost like you move from being a citizen to being somewhat of a Denzian. Um, you know, you're in this liminal space in between what it means to be a, a productive citizen and what it means to be somebody who's asking the state for assistance. Um, because we know under kind of neoliberal governmentality that the good citizen should ask the state for nothing. Um, and this is the idea. Um, so there is that that kind of clinical or administrative context in which, you know, there's a social demotion, there's a continuous emphasis on work um, throughout the process, wh- whether you're making a claim or whether you've become entitled to a claim and you're, you're now maintaining it. Um, so there's the latent suggestion of failure then uh, on the part of somebody that is receiving um, a welfare payment or has gone about making a claim for a welfare payment. Uh, but that's just one aspect of it. I think there's kind of deeper socio and political kind of discourses that also inform 
this kind of stigma that arises uh, when people come into contact with different forms of welfare. So, you know, there's a common sense narrative that exists out there that taking welfare is bad mm. um, and that to associate oneself with taking, of, taking welfare is to associate oneself with a kind of a, 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 a plethora of folk devils, if you like, um, you know, the idea of the person that's never worked a day in their life and has been receiving welfare for 25 years and has 10 kids and, you know, all this kind of, nobody really knows any of these people or has met any of them, but they've heard about them, you know. Um, so there's a common sense kind of crafting of a narrative around welfare that, again, is deeply discrediting and deeply stigmatizing for those who have to encounter welfare in their day-to-day lives. And then there's a political dimension to it too, which I think was most probably aptly summed up by the Welfare Cheats campaign of recent years, where at the level of politics, there's a denigration of welfare. There's the situating of the word welfare next to the word cheat. Um, there's the kind of, in, you know, the, the, the embedding of this discourse in Ireland. Now, it hasn't, it, it's relatively new phenomenon in the Irish context. It's certainly more pronounced in the UK, and it's certainly something that has come from the US in recent years, particularly. Um, and, you know, it's used as a political tool, as an ideological conductor to form the basis uh, for policy decisions. Um, the idea that there is, you know, um, this idea of a reliance on welfare or a kind of a culture of welfare dependency that is used in political circles to justify retrenchment and to justify uh, austerity measures. And that, again, is a very deeply discrediting, deeply stigmatizing narrative that people who engage in uh, welfare claim making and engage in maintaining welfare claims are aware of. Um, and even in my own work, uh, people spoke about being aware of the welfare cheats campaign and the effect that had on them. Um, but there, there's also a kind of a deeper layer. You can go further again if you wanted to, and that's if you wanted to look at the kind of socio-historic context um, of where did these ideas around idleness and charity and welfare recipiency emerge. Um, and a lot of scholars have looked at the, the, the period in history that encapsulated the President Reformation and the changing nature of ideas around work and thrift and idleness. Um, and idleness became a mark of sin, uh, whereas work and industriousness became a mark of divine grace. Um, and that's a very deeply embedded social discourse that is still, you know, at play in how we kind of conceptualize welfare and the doing of welfare today. Um, so there, there's a broad spectrum of places from which we can kind of look and draw our understanding of stigma and the kind of the idea of stigmatized beneficence that, yes, it's a gift. Welfare is a gift, but it's not a gift that comes without uh, consequences. It's not a gift that comes freely. Uh, you know, there's a stigma attached to it and um, there's a social demotion involved. So there's a, there's a whole lot going on. It, 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 it's something we see embedded in policy, um, but it's something that's also very kind of sociological in that it's a part of the fabric of, of society, particularly in kind of Western economies and particularly in liberal welfare states. Thank you. Um, the, the data for this paper and the one that we talked about previously, that, that they're, it's based or it was gathered pre-pandemic. 
Do you think yes. it's possible that there's been a shift in stigma or in stigmatization now that there are so many more people out of work due to COVID and there are so many more people in receipt of the pandemic payments than there are on the kind of standard live register for all the world? Yeah, I think there, there's been a shift, but it hasn't been a kind of paradigm shift, at least not yet. And in some ways, there's been a shift one way and then a, a rowing back. Um, so I kind of, I'm involved in a piece of work with um, Dr. Fiona Jukelov from the School of Applied Social Studies and Dr. Tom Boland from uh, the Department of Sociology and Criminology. And we are gathering data um, in the post-pandemic landscape and we're asking people to reflect on their experiences of government supports at this time. Um, and certainly, uh, you know, initially there was a very positive um, kind of, I suppose, a positive view of the state stepping in and providing this social safety net in a time of crisis. Um, so you have you had people that, you know, suddenly wanted big government and wanted a social safety net and were glad that the state were stepping in to do something. Um, and many people that maybe wouldn't have held that view prior to, to COVID. Um, so certainly in the initial stages, uh, when we go back to kind of March uh, 2020, there was a sense, I think, of kind of solidarity. Um, there was a positivity about it. I suppose we can't we can't kind of go much further without saying that there was at that time also a distinction made between a traditional welfare recipient and in inverted commas um, and somebody on the pandemic unemployment payment. And that was most, um, you know, readily noticeable through the different rates of payment available to each. So if you happen to be unemployed before March the 12th, 2020, you were going to, you know, continue to subsist on 203 hours a week. But if you were somebody that lost their job because of COVID, you were entitled to, to 350 hours a week, um, which I think was a really, um, you know, strident acknowledgement that the, the basic rate of social welfare is not enough for people to live on. But that aside, I think there was a sense of positivity around the payment in the initial stages. Um, but I think the mask started to slip quite quickly um, and we got into a situation where people were saying, you know, X, Y, and Z has been on this payment now, and they were only they were only getting seventy quid a week before this. And you know, there was there was a division and a divisiveness crept into the discourse straight away. And then, of course, we had employers coming out saying it's too much; you're giving people too much. It's it's not incentivizing them to come back to work. You know, we, we need to pay them less so that they'll come out and sell their labour to us. You know, um, so quickly these kinds of discourses that are quite common began to re-emerge. But in saying that, I think overall, the pandemic unemployment payment in particular hasn't attracted the same kind of stigma that traditional uh, welfare payments have and do. Um, and it is because so many people are in such an uncertain situation. So many people have had to rely on it, um, you know, either through a long period of time or periodically. Um, so there's, there's not the same sense of stigma attached to it. It, it, it seems to be more universally accepted. Um, whether that will kind of, I think that in some ways the government are after unleashing this kind of beast and they don't really know what to do with it, you know, and how are they going to wrap this thing up? And they've tried several times to kind of say, okay, we're going to wrap it up uh, at this time in the future. And then circumstances have conspired against them and they've had to say, okay, we're not going to wrap it up. We're going to keep it going. Um, but, it, you know, there are lessons in it, I think. You know, I think the, the, the thing is, it was, it was 
it was a universal, in the first instance at least, it was a universal rate of payment, easy to access, and people were entitled to it as a matter of right if they lost their job because of COVID. And I think that um, shows categorically that uh, universality in uh, welfare provision works, um, and it works to, to counteract uh, the discourse of stigma, because if everybody's entitled to something, um, you know, it doesn't kind of, it doesn't other people or it doesn't kind of categorize people differently. Um, so it's, it's been a very interesting kind of social experiment. I don't think it's fully played out yet. And, you know, I'm not quite sure where it will end up or where it will go. I think, um, you know, if we were to learn anything from the, from the financial crisis, um, usually austerity follows, you know. Um, yeah. And I think that you know, in time we will see the big spends that have happened over the last 12 months and on uh, used as the basis to justify retrenchment and austerity at some point in the future. We're not going to quite there yet. Um, and then, as has happened in the past, uh, welfare recipients will come in for censure um, and will probably be targeted in that way. And that will that may or may not include the pandemic unemployment payment. So it's... It, 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 you know, that's a long way of saying I don't think it's been quite as stigmatizing as traditional welfare payments have traditionally been, but that, it, that, you know, there's more to this yet and it has to be played out and it'll be interesting to see how the government uh, deals with this kind of leviathan of social policy that they're after releasing. Um, Is it almost fair to say, you know, rather than kind of removing some of the stigma um, from everybody in receipt of social welfare that there's now almost like an additional layer so you're in work you're okay you're on welfare oh you're on the covid payment well that's different to yeah. the regular payment so it's a, it's almost another stratification of of stigma yeah absolutely i think it it like they eventually when they when they i suppose in the in, when they initially introduced it i think they were talking about introducing it at the the same rate as the the social welfare payment and then that quickly was said not to be enough so they upped it to 350 and effectively in doing so they created a two tier welfare system um, and of course into this then enters the specter of deservingness so we have some people who are deserving of 350 level of support and we have other people who are not quite as deserving and should you know continue to subsist on 203 hours a week which we as we know forces people to live before the poverty below the poverty line um so i think it has yeah it, it's kind of it's it's lately distinguished between those who are seen as deserving and those who are seen as not so deserving and i think deservingness and the idea of deservingness is it, it plays a big role in the creation of stigma. Um, so, and, and work as well comes into this, the idea of work. Um, so in, in a paper previous to the, to the one on impression management, I spoke about the toxic symbiosis of work and welfare recipiency and the idea that, you know, you either work and thrive or you claim and skive. You, you kind of can't do the two, you know, um, and the fact that work, um, is threaded throughout the welfare experience and constantly reinforced. And it's also reinforced in broader social circles. That's been kind of somewhat ruptured now because of the fact that people can't go into work in, in many instances because of COVID. Um, so it's, it's, it, it's kind of put that on hold a little bit for now, you know. Um, but in doing so, it does, it, that distinction has certainly been drawn that if you were a worker, somebody that was in work and through no fault of your own, 
because of COVID is now out of work, there's not that same stigma attached uh, as there would have been to the traditional job seeker who may have been out of work for, you know, reasons that were very valid, but are not seen as being as valid or as deserving. Um, and deservingness is another concept that uh, goes back to antiquity um, and the idea of distinguishing between the undeserving and the undeserving poor has been with us since, since you know, since Socrates roamed the earth. So it's, it's really, really old and really does kind of feed into people's sense of self um, and therefore kind of influences their behavior um, and causes them to engage in different types of oppression management to try and, I suppose, emphasize their own deservingness, often at the expense of denigrating deservingness of others. Um, and we see with the pandemic, pandemic unemployment payment that that is something that's happening on a kind of macro scale almost kind of subconsciously, I think. There's just a subconscious assumption that you're okay if you're on the pandemic unemployment payment. You know, that's okay. That's an okay thing to be on. That's, that's fine, you know. But other, other payments, uh, you know, not so much, kind of. There's a question mark over those. Um, that continues. So it, it is, again, you know, there's, 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 there's probably more to this story yet to be written. Um, but I think it's very interesting. It's a very interesting time. So you mentioned earlier on your survey that you're doing, the latest piece of research that you're doing with some colleagues around the impact of COVID-19 and the government's response. Are there any preliminary findings coming out of that that are of interest and that you can share with us? Yeah, so um, I suppose to say that we kind of, we've done it in stages. Um, so we're on our second round now. So in the first instance, we, we rolled out the first survey kind of back in April, May, um, uh, with the idea of trying to capture people's early um, experiences of COVID and unemployment and, and worklessness due to COVID. Um, and we have a second round survey that's open at the moment that we're going, we have promoted uh, before Christmas and we will be promoting again in the coming weeks to try and see the, the, the maybe if there has been changes in how people have been thinking and, and how their experiences um, are affecting them and so on. But we have kind of produced some um, preliminary findings from the first data set. And I suppose in the main, particularly in the context of this conversation, uh, what we found was that people were very positively inclined towards the state response. Uh, they were very positively in inclined towards the pandemic unemployment payment in particular. Um, so, you know, there were some exceptions to this. We did have some people who were saying things like, oh, you know, it needed to be more nuanced. Everybody's getting the same thing. And some people were only earning 100 euros a week and they shouldn't be getting 350. So you've got, there was a little bit of that. But in the main, people were very positive. They appreciated a strong uh, response by the state. Uh, they appreciated the ease with which it, people you could access this payment. Um, and, and people were very kind of positive about the government's response, uh, at least in those initial months. Um, and I suppose when you kind of take a step further back from that then and you maybe begin to unpack that a little bit and you say to yourself, well, what does that tell you about what people want and desire? Um, for me anyway, and, and maybe I'm biased in this respect, that, that this is telling me like that people appreciate a strong safety net. They appreciate a strong social safety net. They appreciate a state that can act uh, in the interests of its citizens at a time of crisis. Um, and, you know, people want, uh, you know, big government, at least in some instances, um, and the state to be a partner in ensuring the common good. So I think that kind of um, came across very strongly uh, in the initial data set. 
Um, so we haven't begun to look at what people have said in the second round yet. Um, so there's, there's, there's little I can say about that. Um, but in the first round, yeah, people were very positive about um, the government response. Uh, people were also appreciative in some instances of being able to take the foot off the pedal a little bit and reflect. So, you know, some people found themselves suddenly thrust into a space where they had time in their hands, where the kind of the, the rapid pace of daily life had suddenly slowed down. Um, and they were able to reflect a little bit and kind of question how they had been doing things up until when this happened. Um, so, you know, we, there were several people, um, a strong cohort of people uh, who responded saying, this has given me um, the opportunity to reflect on, on work and life and a work-life balance and what, what it actually means. Um, and, you know, I think that uh, I've learned something and I, I may approach things differently in the future. You know, I suppose I have to caveat, caveat that by saying there were some people for whom this sudden uh, loss of work was catastrophic um, and was very difficult for them um, and thrust them into a very dark space. Um, and, and that was true, too, for some people. Um, so, you know, there were, there, there were shades and textures to how people experienced it, for sure. Um, but I suppose the kind of main positive thing that came out of it was people were happy with the government response at the level of politics, but also at the level of policy. People really welcomed the pandemic unemployment payment um, and found that to be a very strong uh, and robust measure that ensured that they could kind of get some semblance of uh, surety and assuredness as they continued through this crisis, you know, which was still evolving at that time and is still evolving now. Yeah, and I mean, that, that, that I suppose, doesn't surprise me in terms of there were some people that were just thrown for a loop with this because again for many people their job and the particular area that they're in is almost their identity you know when you ask people who they are more often than not they'll tell you what they do for a living rather than you know anything else about themselves um so there is that kind of again that identity thing um, moving on then just slightly to uh, a recent piece you had on RT Brainstorm, it was just before Christmas, and it was a, a really interesting look at how charity has come to fill the role of the state, so providing services that really should otherwise be provided by the state, particularly for those who are in, in need or in some way marginalised. And I was I was showing this to, to other people over the Christmas and we were chatting about it, and um, by WhatsApp, all socially distanced, I have not left my house. Um, but, you know, there, there was this kind of query coming up around, well, is it your contention that there's no place for charity? Or, you know, do you think that there will always be some level of, of charity needed? Yeah, um, I suppose, like, if I was to really own it and kind of, uh, and, and really kind of reveal my, my, uh, my politics, I, I think there would be no place for charity in the way I would... Uh, you know, like society to be. Um, whether that's realistic or feasible is a, is a completely different matter. But um, yeah, I mean, if, if, if it would be my contention that charity uh, at any level, um, you know, particularly where it is providing something that should be provided by the state is, is, an in, is indicative of a failure of politics and a failure of policy. Um, but I mean, it is far more complex than that in Ireland um, and, you know, the world over, really. But I suppose in the Irish, I've been kind of threatening to write that piece for a while. Um, 
And it, I'm not the first to, to, to make those claims by any means. Um, and I actually quote Clement Attlee in the piece, um, you know, the, the former British Prime Minister who, who made a, a very mm. kind of similar argument to what I'm making now in 2020, 2021. Um, but every year uh, I sit down with my kids and I watch the Late Late Toy Show. And at some point during the Late Late Toy Show, uh, Ryan Tuberty talks about how all these toys, these wonderful toys, will be given to all the poor kids when this is over. Okay, and I always, I always paused the television at that point and ruined the late, late toy show for the kids because I talked to them about how that, that this, this is not something to celebrate. The fact that these toys have to be given to people that can't afford to provide Christmas for themselves is not something to celebrate. This is not something we should all feel very good about. The fact that this has to happen is an indictment of Irish society. Um, and I've been doing that for several years and uh, threatening to write this piece <laughs> at the same time. So I did. I, I sat down and I wrote it um, in December. And I knew it was a little bit kind of given the season, a little bit maybe bad humbug on my part. Um, but I think that's because charity and the idea of charity becomes front and centre in the minds of many at Christmas in a way that it doesn't perhaps at other times of the year. Um, but charity is with us 12 months of the year, you know. Um, and uh, in the piece, I make reference to St. Vincent de Paul's annual appeal, which this time was about a lack of options, people having to choose between, uh, you know, the heating uh, or the shopping or giving something to someone for Christmas or not being able to afford to, to heat the house. Um, and, and these are choices that are with people in this country 12 months of the year, not just at Christmas. Um, and that, to me, is an abomination. 2020, 2021, the fact that people still are forced into those choices. The choices that Dickens described in A Christmas Carol are still alive. And while the workhouse may be gone, it may be digitized and sanitized in, in 2021. But the, you know, the, the ethos and the idea of pins, this is still alive and well and still with us, apparently. Um, and so for me, it's very much a, an indictment of the state. Um, an indictment and a failure of politics and politics to lift people forced to make those decisions at this time. Um, there, I, I, I don't think there's any place for it. Um, so I, I just got a message there saying my internet connection's unstable, so let me know if, uh, if I drop out. Sure. Um, but yeah, um, and I suppose if we look at Ireland um, as a case study and we look at the role of charity in Ireland, we, we kind of come to this concept, uh, the idea of a mixed economy of welfare, so, you know, we have different people that provide welfare in Ireland, the state, certainly, um, informal welfare through things like carers and family members. And then we have the voluntary uh, and charitable sector that do an enormous amount of work on behalf of the state um, it, that would amount to untold uh, billions if it were to be calculated economically, uh, which to say the state is saved from having to, um, to, to pay out every year by providing uh, services and so on and if we kind of look at the mixed economy of welfare and we say well how did we arrive at this type of how did we arrive at this way of doing welfare um, you have to kind of take it back to I suppose our, our kind of Catholic uh, heritage and the idea of Catholic subsidiarity um, and Catholic subsidiarity being the idea that the state should really stay out of people's business um, and that you know matters should be handled at the most local level possibly first in the family um, secondly in the community um, and that the state should should you know really stay out of people's lives um, and people should be you know should be free to kind of 
lived their lives and that the church had a role in kind of uh, ensuring the common good and that that was not the role of the state. So, I mean, that is a legacy uh, that's still with us. Um, and it's still with us in the way that we still do charity and we still do the provision of welfare in Ireland. Um, so there's a deep historic reason too for you know, charity having such um, a, a strong role uh, in the doing of welfare and in the doing of social policy in Ireland. Um, so yeah, I've been threatening to write that one with a while. Um, and, you know, I... I you know, I think it, it, it's useful to problematise charity. Um, I think we need to problematise it. I think the idea of charity being accepted as a universal kind of good, um, it gives delight to, to what's actually happening um, because charity for me is an indicative of, uh, indicative of, of, of a failure on the part of politics and policy. Um, and it was just, I suppose, a way of making that point to, to hopefully a broader audience. Yeah, I mean, I think there was one particular point in it that struck me that's a, you know, many people are sick of me talking about that I, I, I have tended to kind of just quieten down about. But it is that thing of, you know, people who give to charity, they they get something. They get, you know, something for themselves in terms of that it's a feel good factor. They also, depending on how much they give, may get a tax relief. The people who are taking from it don't have that feel good factor they have a potentially an oh thank god there's something to put food on the table but that's about the height of it there's no there is, you know we're back to that shame and that stigma thing nobody's going out saying oh thank god i got my vouchers this week um and it is that kind of you know no matter what again if we kind of stratify it's like oh well now at least i didn't have to to go there looking or go there begging um and it's, it is that thing of, you know, while they're doing incredible, incredible, incredible work, that it shouldn't be down to charities. It shouldn't be at the mercy of what is available in terms of resources. When we look at what's happened in terms of donations going down, and there, there was a huge hit in donations last year, you know, that means that some services that are absolutely essential won't be delivered because there isn't you know, a governmental response. It isn't a, a state service, notwithstanding the fact that really, you know, it's a health service or it's a, a mental health service or it's, you know, it's some other form of welfare that should be delivered by the state. Um, which, which leads me, I suppose, to my, my final question. I'd be glad to know. I feel like I'm holding you hostage at this point. Um, in terms of, I suppose, through all of the work that you've done, through the interviews and the surveys that you've conducted, um, you know, We've talked about the fact that if there was something like a basic income, a universal basic income and universal basic services, that, you know, there would be less stigma, that there would be, because if everybody's getting something, then really it's nobody's business who's getting what. You know, if you're working on top of that, fair play. If you can't work or you choose to do other things, caring in the home or whatever it is, fair play. But, you know, it, it levels that off because everybody is essentially the same with that. But, you know, in terms of when we talk about services and that that's why I brought your, your article into this conversation, has anything come through in terms of what services would be really meaningful to people on lower incomes that should be delivered? Yeah, um, I suppose, like, not, not strongly and not because that there, is, there isn't a strong view on this out there from people on lower incomes, probably because my research angle wasn't kind of, you know, um, that particular 
question was not maybe prominently placed. Sure. Um, but uh, but in saying that, um, I think you know things like uh, what you'd expect really uh, did come true. So. Um, you know, from people I've spoken to, the idea of a, a, a universal health service that's free at the point of contact, um, modelled on something close to the NHS model, or at least the, the the kind of NHS model of old before it kind of it's in a, in a in a stage of transition now, I suppose. Um, Childcare is something that's come up very very strongly for people, um, you know, and the the provision of childcare again. Maybe people didn't use the term universal, but that's kind of what they were driving at, you know. Um, so, yeah, I think universal basic income is fine, but it needs to be coupled with universal basic services too, yes. you know. Um, and that people are people are kind of latently aware that you can't really have one without the other, you know. Um, and I suppose there's a, a couple of points I'd just like to make in respect to... to, to the question you said and the point you made earlier about social reciprocity um, and charity and how charity denies the the it denies the the receiver of charity the ability to reciprocate and that is a very very powerful social dynamic social reciprocity um, the idea that you pay it forward the idea that you know you would pay tax so that somebody else somewhere else could get an education um, it's a, it's a very powerful sociological concept. And when you are in receipt of charity, um, you are not in a position to reciprocate. Um, and when you're not in a position to reciprocate, this leads to shame and it leads to stigma and it leads to a kind of a, 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 ruck, a, kind of a rupture or a rupture with what it means to be a, a good citizen. And people I've spoken to have struggled with that enormously whether they receive state support or whether they receive support through charitable means. The, the idea that somebody else's taxes are paying for them to live, which is how they frame it, not I, um, is, is a very, very um, powerful dynamic that enters people's lives and really um, forces people to question their identity in a, in a, very, in a very strong way. Um, it's something that people find it very difficult to live with. Um, and I think kind of that is probably, it's not to denigrate the doors of charity. Uh, you know, I mean, there are some charitable services in this country without which people would literally, um, you know, fall through the cracks, to use that awful term. Um, and there are charitable services and voluntary services in this country that do untold work and deserve enormous credit. Um, but, you know, it comes back to my central point is why? Why do we need these services to do that work? Why is it not? Why are these services not universally um, available to people in the first place? Um, and why are people not um, able to subsist at a level that you know sufficient to meet their basic needs? Um, you know, people are entitled to exist, um, and you know nobody else is entitled to hold those people to their values or their value structure. You know. Um, and this is a very kind of radical concept for people that, 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 you know, to get their head around the idea that somebody should just be entitled to exist. Uh, or I go further, somebody should be entitled to exist and not work if they don't want to work. You know, if they have other things that interest them, um, they should be entitled to pursue those other interests. Um, and they should be entitled to exist with dignity, you know. Yeah. Um, but, but I think people have a very hard time reconciling that. Um, and, 
you know, that's why it's easy for states to make policy decisions that do roll back um, services and do roll back welfare supports and, you know, allow charities uh, to proliferate because they're necessary and, and they're needed, you know. Um, and, and then I suppose the, the other point I want to make uh, is you spoke there about kind of universalism as a concept and universalism is something that, um, you know, has a, has a, an ameliorating effect on stigma. Um, and again, like this is nothing new. You know, people have been talking about this since you know antiquity. But I, I don't, I don't need to go back to, to ancient Greece. Like we only need to go back to kind of the post-war settlement in, in the UK, particularly. Um, and you know, so if we think about somebody like Richard Titmus, who was a, a social policy academic uh, in the London School of Economics um, in the post-war period, um, he spoke about universal social services versus means-tested services, and he talked about the idea that selectivist services are designed to keep people out, not let them in. Um, and when you when you when you kind of um, you do welfare in that way. All you're doing is distinguishing between them, the other, and us. You're, you're, you're categorizing people. And when you categorize people, it in, inevitably gives rise to a sense of stigma and a sense of shame. So he was a strong proponent of the idea of a universal welfare service um, and a universal uh, welfare payments. Um, and he was a strong believer in the idea that the, these types of provisions would, in time, um, through the kind of gift relationship idea, uh, get, get rid of or at least ameliorate stigma to a, to a large degree. So again, I think we're living in a very kind of strange period now where we're certainly in some sort of a transition, I think, um, and concepts that may be old in some ways uh, are beginning to come to the fore again. Some, in some ways they're being forced uh, to, to the fore through things like COVID um, and um, through broader things like climate change and so on. But we need to start thinking about you know, universal social services and we need to start thinking about universal basic income and ideas like this and ideas that acknowledge that people have the right to exist and the right to exist with dignity. And that needs to be the bottom line. And we can talk about everything else after that, but that needs to be the bottom line. Okay. People have the right to exist with dignity and people have the right to exist. Um, I, I don't think that's too much to ask in, in 2021. You know, um, people have been debating these things for, for centuries. It's about time we made our minds up, you know, that you know, nobody should be forced to live with the indignity of poverty. Um, you know, everybody should be entitled to a basic minimum and everybody should be entitled to some bit of dignity, surety and safety in their lives. Um, and it's through the state that that should be provided, not, not through charity, ideally. Um, absolutely. And I think on that very powerful point, I will say thank you so much for all of your time, Joe. Um, and a happy new year to you. Um, thank you again. Yeah. And we'll definitely get you on that cook and slot. Yeah, absolutely. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Social Justice Ireland is very keen in respect of the progression of a basic income. We believe this complements the idea of a universal basic services package. For more information on a universal basic income, please check out our website www.socialjustice.ie. As always, if you have any ideas or suggestions for our podcast, please do let us know by emailing secretary at socialjustice.ie. Until next time, stay safe.